Our text for this afternoon's service is the Word of God as we confess it in Lord's Day 4. You can find that on page 520 of your books of praise. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The sermon this afternoon was written by Reverend Rolfden Hollander, pastor of the Living Light Canadian Reformed Church in Grimsby, Ontario. In response to this afternoon's sermon, let us sing Psalm 73, stanza 8 and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, all sin is equal, some people say. I've heard it among us too, after all. For example, Jesus says that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust, adultery, same sin. And anger or hatred, God regards all these as murder, we confess in Lord's Day 40. All sin is equal. That's used sometimes to question the attention we give to certain sins. Why warn against practicing homosexuality when the sin of disrespect or gossip or anger is that much more widespread? That's so discriminatory. All sin is equal. Why should you be so much more concerned about the one than the other? There's something helpful about that idea, isn't there? How about when we're trying to bring the gospel to outsiders, even especially to inmates, for example? Some of us are busy with Rockwood Chapel service. There's opportunity to bring the gospel to men and women who have committed crimes sufficient to warrant prison times, sometimes even heinous crime. If all sin is equal, that helps us not to look down on them. What they've done, what we do daily, it's all the same. But is it? Is all sin equal? When I stage a question like that in catechism class, the kids know to answer, no. It's a leading question, isn't it? To say all sin is equal can be misleading. That's not the whole story. There is certainly something that's the same for all sin, no matter what the sin. But there's also something that's not the same from one sin to the next. These things come up in Lord's Day 4 as we come to the end of our confession on our sin and our misery. There we come to the conclusion that what is equal is what all sin deserves before our holy God. All sin is equally condemnable before God, 
That's how I summarize the message for this afternoon. All sin is equal, Lee, condemnable before God. We will see this in three points, justly so, really so, and necessarily so. The kindergarten class at school is learning their alphabet in some simple, sight, some simple words, sight words, they call them, words they recognize just by seeing them. That's one way of reading. They're not quite capable of sounding out the words based on the letters they know, but very close. How would you respond to the teacher if one day your son or daughter came home in tears because they had to read a big book at school as a test and they all failed? Class, here's a book. Read it and tell me about it so I know you read it. I'd have a question or two for the kindergarten teacher for some explanation. Isn't it a little unfair what you're asking them to do? Aren't you asking them to do something they're just not capable of doing? How can you fail them all for that? Look at the tears. That's the scenario in the first question of Lord's Day 4, isn't it? But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? Love is the fulfillment of the law. But we are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Why? Because by nature we are so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil, Lord's Day 3. Totally corrupt, inclined to all evil. We can't love. Is it fair that God still commands love? Then we're brought back to the beginning, to what we heard a bit about earlier already in Lord's Day 3, about the beauty in Eden. It was a beautiful place. A beautiful place with so much potential. God created the man and the woman in his image. He prepared a special place for them in the garden for them to work it and keep it. And then he had placed there in the middle of the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a test to see whether the man and the woman would love him with their whole heart, soul, and mind, and with all their strength. Whether they would give themselves to God in wholehearted devotion and if they did, we can only imagine how wonderfully that relationship would have grown. Now we might say, God knew they would fail. He has an eternal decree. From eternity, he purposed that this is how things would work out. Yet that doesn't take away from the things are on the ground, we would say. The man and the woman didn't know this eternal decree. God works in time to carry out his plan, and he created man in his image, male and female, with a free will. They were given a mind to think and make choices. Living in the beautiful garden, with all that it had to offer, they didn't have to eat from the tree. When the serpent came, serpent came to the woman to say, did God really say she, should have, she could have listened and rebuked him. The man who was standing there could have intervened to say, Be gone, Satan. It was one simple law. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. No, we can't say to God, it's not fair. As the Catechism says, for God so created man that he was able to do it. There was that potential. 
As the church father Augustine once said, man before the fall was posse non pecar, able not to sin. He was able not to sin. He could have really and truly said, no, I will not eat from that tree. But that was then, right? This is now. We're many years removed from that. That's not how God looks at it. When Adam fell, we all fell with him. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Again, we have a hard time with that in our individualistic culture. It's all about me, myself, and I. Let me be responsible for my choices, my own decisions. Yet listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so spread to all men, because all sinned. Verse 15. For if many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The point is driven home. It was all very good. Life in a beautiful garden full of enormous potential. But with one bite of the fruit, everything changed. It wasn't posse non pecar anymore, able not to sin, but non posse non pecar, not able not to sin. Could the man and the woman then walk out of the garden to say to God, it's not fair. We can't love you and our neighbor perfectly. How can you still expect that of us? God could say, it's not my fault. It's yours. If only you would have listened. Oh, they were quick to point the finger of blame around. Adam even dared to indirectly point the finger at God. It was the woman you gave me, but it was too late. God was and is justified in punishing sin, in condemning sin. He'd said it clearly, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Just a bite, a delicious bite from an eye-catching fruit. That's all it was, right? At the instigation of the devil, true, the Catechism confesses, but still in deliberate disobedience, enough to condemn the whole human race. Romans 5, verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. It's tempting for people to still point the finger at Adam. It's his fault. But then the Apostle also writes in Romans 3, verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. To be continued in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. It was so different, so beautiful, and now 
a groaning creation in bondage to corruption, suffering from sin, all kinds of sin, idolatry, false worship, blasphemy, workaholism, murder, rape, adultery, homosexuality, theft, gossip, slander, deception, lying, covetousness, discontentment, ingratitude, ungodliness, drunkenness, anger, lust, envy, irritability, impatience, anxiety, pride, lack of self-control, judgmentalism, worldliness. You hear the list and you think about yourself. I'm included. All sin is equally deserving of condemnation, justly so, because it was so, diff- so much different the way God created it all, and that's not something God will simply overlook. That's our second point. <clears throat> love covers over a multitude of sins, right? And God is love. So is it possible that God would simply cover, cover over sin, as in overlook sin? That's the second question and answer in Lord's Day 4. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? The answer is clear. Certainly not. He is terribly angry with our original sin as well as our actual sins. He is terribly angry. That is an expression of God's deep emotion. Oh, in his grace, God came looking for his children in the garden, but he was still terribly angry with their sin and is still. It pains him, hurts him to see such a reaction to his outpouring of grace, and his pain is stirred to wrath. Therefore, he will punish our sin by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared. He will punish our sin, not might, not could, but will. God's wrath is real. He's shown that throughout the history of his covenant people. When they became too comfortable in the covenant, we might say, God poured out his anger and wrath on them. They took it for granted, and he convicted them of their own sin. Just think of the Psalm of Moses, Psalm 90. And think of Moses as leader of the people of God through the wilderness. He'd seen the wrath of God before his own eyes. At Mount Sinai, he'd had to mediate between God and the people. God was ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. He was that angry, that filled with his righteous wrath. Oh, then he didn't. But that doesn't mean that his judgment was less real. They did it again. They didn't trust him. They could never enter the land of Canaan, they thought. So in his wrath, God caused Israel to wander the wilderness for 40 years. An entire generation would have to pass away in the desert. Then it's no wonder that Moses sang the song he did in Psalm 90. Perhaps no other psalm expresses more movingly the sad state of man before the face of God. For we, are brought to an end, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. 
for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end with a sigh. Moses didn't sing that defiantly or despairingly. It was honest. He knew his guilt, his people's guilt, and he knew the reality of God's wrath. There was no living in denial, no trying to hide from the inevitable. This is the result of man's sin, God's very real wrath. And Moses and Israel experienced it in the wilderness. But not only there and then, God's people don't learn their lessons that easily. It became a pattern, not just in the Old, also in the New Testament. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their uprightness suppress the truth. Or the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, with the dreadful words of Peter, You have not lied to men but to God. Ananias fell down and died. About three hours later, the same happened to his wife, Sapphira. Together, they tested the Spirit of God and lied to him. And God punished them for their sin. God doesn't overlook sin. He won't let disobedience and apostasy go unpunished. Sin makes people, by nature, children of wrath. Paul says in Ephesians 2, yes, God's wrath is real. He will punish sin. Notice what our Lord's Day says at the same time about that judgment. He will punish them by a just judgment. With God, the punishment always fits the crime. And then we can think back to that idea that all sin is equal. Yes, all sin deserves condemnation. But is all sin the same? We read from Numbers 15. Then God makes a distinction between unintentional sin and sin with a high hand. That's sin that's defiant and rebellious, shaking the fist at God. Unintentional sin may be committed by someone who is simply trying to live by the law of God, but fails. What is just judgment? For unintentional sin, God prescribes an offering. It is a forgivable sin, but with a high hand, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of God and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. For open rebellion against God, there is no, for, no offering for forgiveness, and that carries through into more of God's law. There is the death penalty for premeditated murder and adultery. For sins less serious, like theft, negligence, disputes, fines or beatings, could be the punishment. If all sin is equal, would the punishment not be the same? What about when Jesus talks about lust as adultery and anger as murder? He was confronting the Pharisees who were teaching that not only the act was sin, only the act of adultery or the act of murder. Then Jesus explained the full depths of the law. Even their intent deserves judgment. Not that the sin is the same. Even we don't treat such sin the same. Would a judge deal with hatred 
the same as the one who committed murder? Would we deal with a spouse struggling with lust the same as the one who committed adultery? No wonder Jesus can then say that the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah will be less than that of Capernaum. Sodom and Gomorrah never received the Savior in the flesh, bringing the very heart of the gospel. For God, the greater the knowledge, the greater the accountability. Yes, that speaks to us too then. All sin is equally condemnable before God, and really so, condemnable with a just judgment. Sometimes we offhandedly say, there's a special place in hell for someone like that. And there's some truth to that. Condemnation is just and real. The place of condemnation will be more bearable for some than for others. The greater judgment for those who know more and what don't we know. It's like what we read in Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's just judgment will hold us to higher account. We have a knowledge of the truth. We have been blessed with the covenant. We have the promises in Christ from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hear the gospel in Christ preached every Sunday. We receive the administration of the sacraments. We know Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. There are many millions, billions who have never known him, who would never, who have never heard of him, who have never listened to the word, much less opened the scriptures, who have never tasted the Lord's goodness, and yet are without excuse. Then as Jesus said in his day, our judgment will be the heavier. It will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for the members of Redeemer if we should go on sinning deliberately. That's not, the put, that's not to put the fear into believing, to scare us from hell to heaven. It's simply the truth of God's word, the reality of his judgment. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Some sin is judged more severely than others, especially for those who have received knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. There is a special place in hell. Yes, hell. It must be so. It's necessarily so. That's our third point. Why does our sin deserve hell? 
God's justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Back to the thought of all sin being equal or not, the Catechism isn't identifying here a certain terrible kind of sin, sin committed against the most high majesty of God. No, the point is that all sin is committed against the most high majesty of God, Like David, like David confesses in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. That's true for all sin, our sin, whether it's unintentional sin or with a high hand, the usual obvious sins we list sometimes, addictions to alcohol, drugs, pornography, sexual impurity, or those unintentional sins, or those so-called respectable sins, Things we say aren't that big of a deal. Lack of contentment, anger, bitterness, low self-control. It's all sin committed against the most high majesty of God, deserving of everlasting punishment of body and soul. Yes, some sin is more serious than others. We just heard that. But what is equal is that it's all deserving of eternal condemnation. And that's because of who God is. God is eternal and holy. He is light. In him, there is no darkness. He cannot stand sin. Sin cannot come into his presence. That's why all those years the curtain was in the temple. I'll live with you, but you can't come near. When Isaiah heard in his visions the seraphs singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And if God is that holy and eternal, then there can only be everlasting punishment of body and soul. Infinite. Sorry. Infinite God, infinite judgment. For all eternity, those who live in their sin must be separated from God. And that is the most severe, everlasting forsakenness by God, eternal separation from him, a vast chasm between him and sinful man that can no longer be bridged. How terrible the vision of John in Revelation 14 concerning this. Then one of the angels said, If anyone worships the beast in its image, that is anyone who remains in their sin, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There are many who cringe at the doctrine of hell. They refuse to believe it. Instead, some will teach that perhaps only some are saved, but all the rest are just annihilated. They are made nothing. They disappear. Simply are no more. But the Bible text we just heard tells us differently. God's severe wrath over sin is torment forever and ever. 
It's an insult to the holiness of God. It's necessary for him, in keeping with who he is, to punish sin in that way. Yes, then we can truly understand the text that was quoted too in Lord's Day 4. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. All sin is equally condemnable before God. It's necessarily so. Why do you need to know this, beloved, to live and die in the joy of your only comfort? It's a real question. Yesterday I was reading readers' comments on a newly published book about the canons of Dort on Amazon. The reviewer couldn't accept the teaching of total depravity, figured it was a startling thing to read and unacceptable. But what then? Then they're going to diminish, weaken the work of Christ. We won't see the extent of our deliverance, and less deliverance means less thankfulness. Small sin, small savior, small service. Big sin, big savior, big service. Then, hallelujah, what a savior. Because think of it, when we make public profession of our faith, as some of our youth hope to do here too in a few months, we're asked the question, do you truly detest and humble yourself before God because of your sins and seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ? Hearing this word of God that's laid upon our hearts again, isn't it? Seek your life outside of yourself in Jesus Christ. Outside of yourself. If we have to rely, be it ever so little, on ourselves, we would be hopelessly lost. But in Christ... We belong to him. Come along with me again to the foot of the cross. See him nailed there for our sin. Feel there the thickness of that lonely darkness. Hear him call out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And know that in all his sufferings, he endured the anguish and torment of hell. This is the condemnation we deserve. If we only, if we had to rely, be it ever so little on ourselves, we would be hopelessly lost. But when we say with all our heart, I belong in body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, we know we are spared from this. He bore the condemnation of God-forsakenness for me against my sin, all my sin. Small sin, serious sin. His body was broken. His precious blood poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. And we will say with renewed purpose, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Amen. Let us respond to the gospel message by singing Psalm 73, verse 8 and 9. We will do so standing.